and welcome to The Roll-Up, Leafly's news and culture podcast covering all things cannabis. I'm your host, Bruce Barcott. Joining me today is Leafly senior editor, Dave Schmader. Hello. Ben Adlin is still away. Boo. Uh, he's, now he's in Paris, Dave. Paris, France. Good for him, bad for us. I'm I know, saying. exactly. Uh, you speak of Paris so beautifully that you should just hold forth for oh a second. Oh my God. It's the most human city <laughs> of all the cities, Dave. It really is. I mean, it's just a, such a human scale and beautiful and it just blows. Paris and Venice, the two cities um, that will just explode your head once you get there. Anyway, Ben, I hope your head is exploding in a good way. <laughs> this week, we are taking on a number of topics, including the latest DEA administrator to step down, uh, looking at Senator Diane Feinstein and why she is California's last prohibitionist. Um, we're talking about Dr. Ethan Russo, who put out a really interesting webcast this week on opioids and cannabis. And we'll bring in Gage Peak, our data guy, to talk about cancer patients not getting information and the surprising effects of cannabis legalization on property values. Dave, you're wearing your Who's Can Do t-shirt. Yeah. In honor of the late, great Grant Hart, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Sorry. Lost him a week Too ago. Too young. 56. Oh, oh my God. That's, yeah. He was a peer. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> An older peer, but. Saw them at the Hub Ballroom back in the day. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, uh, let's dive into the cannabis news. Um, first of all, we have, I guess the official news this week was that the DEA interim administrator resigned. But I don't know. To me, this is, this is sort of just revolving door news. I mean, Chuck Rosenberg has been acting head of the DEA since the end of the Obama years. Um, he actually was kind of appointed by Obama when uh, the previous administrator, Michelle Leonard, uh, stepped down, resigned kind of in disgrace after DE agents got caught doing uh, naughty things with prostitutes somewhere I can't even remember but it's just basically it's it's one after the other DEA administrators they all hate cannabis they all think it should be uh, should remain federally illegal and people should go to jail that that kind of seems like it's part of the job description isn't it right exactly I think I think it kind of is you know to to come in as a quote-unquote reformer I don't think would go over well with uh, whatever administration Trump administration Obama administration Bush Clinton you name it revolving door aspect also applies to the Trump administration of like, oh, another position is now vacant. Um, right. As a, aside from DEA. And apparently it was, uh, there was a lovely headline about he was, it was a really tasteful verb to say he was repelled by Trump. Uh, right. <laughs> part of why and it was, was, it was <laughs> that one comment that Trump made a while back about uh, jokingly, not joking about police officers not being so polite to criminal suspects in terms of, you know, when they help them into the back seat of the police car. Uh, and Trump said, maybe we should rough them up, up a bit. I'm paraphrasing, of course. But uh, anyway, that was apparently one of the things that uh, sent the DEA administrator out the door. Who knows where the line is for some people? I mean, does this give Trump and Sessions an opportunity to do something diabolical? Not really. You know, not really. I mean, I think that early word has the former head of the New Jersey State Police as a likely candidate, but I don't see how he's any better or worse than the 10 people that have come before him. So um, really, I think it's th- that sort of policy is in the hands of, uh, of Jeff Sessions. But segueing uh, into a more 
upbeat topic regarding Jeff Sessions. Uh, I came away from a conference in Washington, D.C. a couple weeks ago uh, with some really interesting statistics that were kind of lost in early September. Uh, this was uh, a Quinnipiac University poll. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Quinnipiac? Come I, on. I always Help go back out. to that strunk and white thing. Like, if you don't know how to pronounce it, pronounce it loud. <laughs> Just commit. <laughs> Quinnipiac University <laughs> poll uh, that found that 75% of Americans, three in four Americans, believe the federal government should not crack down on state legal cannabis policies, uh, which was heartening. Not all that surprising, I guess. The surprising thing to me was they found that what was it? 94% of Americans support medical marijuana. 94%. I don't think 94% of Americans do most things. I, you know, I actually, I wanted to find out how weird things got when you got down to uh, that sort of percentage. So hold on. Um, I found it here. We're talking flat earth society here, Dave. 15% of Americans believe the government sends mind control technology via TV broadcast signals. 7% believe the moon landing was fake. And 4% think it's plausible that lizard people control society. Now, the lizard people thing, I really, I have to chalk up to basically just people looking for a joke. It's like, oh, yeah, sure, I believe that. Right. You come to the end of the survey on the phone and like, oh, hell yeah, whatever. Lizard people. Yep. Put me down for yes on that one. Great. So these are the freaks that can, freakery kind of stuff that can show up between, you know, under 20% of Americans will agree on this. And, and where, and this is tied to the cannabis, what's... 6% of Americans believe it should be illegal for physicians to prescribe medical marijuana for their patients. Um, of course, prescribe is a, in quotes because you can't, you can only recommend it. Yeah. But that's where, uh, that's where we're at. One of the uh, public policy people who spoke at this conference in D.C., it was, the conference was put on by Normal. Her name was Celinda Lake, and she runs Lake Research Partners. It's a big D.C. public policy firm. And she basically said... This thing is more popular than the 4th of July. She had that kind of voice where it was like, this one, more popular than the 4th of July. Don't even bother. The debate's over, she said. I Often, you know, I, I always think that these changes come about because for the holdouts, for the reactionaries, of you have to have point blank contact with someone who has benefited to change your mind. Like right, you need to know right. a gay person. You need to know someone whose epilepsy was cured by CBD. And that takes a long time. But it seems like word is spreading and empathy is growing just you, you kind of get to this in your column about it's hard to argue with this. It is hard to argue with this, and especially it's hard to argue with uh, a lot of the uh, women who are leading state movements, and a number of these women are mothers of children who find that CBD is helping their child live through and, and manage their epilepsy, this sort of thing. Um, it's really hard to argue with those women when they are out there in public, coming strong, defending their kids, and you're, say, Orrin Hatch of Utah, who's never even thought twice about this issue. It's a no-brainer. It's like, no, 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 and no. Um, and all of a sudden, you have these mothers who are incredibly sympathetic, incredibly powerful figures, and come out and say, well, you know, you really should look at this. And 
you know, the power of unexpected sources is so important in this issue. Uh, when we have essentially a white guy come out and say, I'm all for legalizing cannabis, a lot of people will say, oh yeah, whatever, you big hippie, you just want to smoke dope and get high. But if you're um, not in that demographic group, if, if you're coming from a position where it's not assumed, you're kind of just a, an old style, quote unquote, stoner who just wants to get high and sit on the couch all day, it can be a really powerful message. Yeah, and it kind of builds on what Mothers Against Drunk Driving achieved while fighting an entirely different fight. But just there's a point when mothers join together to say something that America kind of like snaps too. And right, <laughs> right, right. I like right. that trait of right. ours. Listen to your mother, listen to your grandmother. <laughs> uh, you know, when, when they're speaking up, it's like it's worth it's worth listening to. Um, yeah, that was a, a, a really interesting uh, bit of information that, like I said, it hadn't. It, it sort of got glossed over uh, earlier in the month, but I was glad to be able to kind of bring that out, uh, bring that out this week. had an interesting piece this week on Ethan Russo, uh, who is a well-known doctor in the cannabis world. He put out a webcast on opioids and cannabis. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you found there. Sure. Yeah, this was um, presented, uh, the webinar was presented with Americans for Safe Access, and it was, uh, the official title was Cannabis, an Unconventional Solution to the Opioid Crisis, with a question mark at the end. Um, and yes, it is. We all know it is an unconventional solution. We've talked a lot about that with the interview of Dr. Philippe Lucas. And um, actually, the Philippe Lucas got kind of laid out all the basics that um, in Ethan Russo's, we got a really interesting kind of cultural history of the combination of cannabis and opioids. Not just that, hey, this, is, this isn't anything new, but really specific, interesting examples of how not new the, the tandem use of cannabis and opium. Um, back then we were dealing with... Yeah, you, see, you mentioned that this, one of the things he brought forth was that this is nothing new. I mean, right. this has been talked about, this, this combination or, or, or antagonism between these two substances for, for decades, going back right. a long time. Yeah, and one was that um, a big thing was that cannabis had all the painkilling properties of opium without uh, making you fall asleep or making you nauseous. So it was first kind of hyped as... Uh, uh, it was people who had been treated with opium... Uh, in the 19th century for migraines and they switched to cannabis and the cannabis helped with their pain and also helped them with their withdrawal symptoms from the morphine. So that kind of is what we're dealing with now is that cannabis can really help as an exit drug for, for opioid addicts. Um, and I guess my favorite fact in this was, uh, this is a terrible fact, I mean the opioid epidemic kills 80 people a day. Cannabis has never killed anyone. Um, and there was a very specific answer given by D Dr. Russo in this, in this um, webinar, and it had to do with the deployment in the endocannabinoid system in our brain. Um, opioids, uh, there's a really dense cluster of receptors for opioid receptors in the brain's cardiorespiratory centers. So when you overwhelm those with an opioid overdose, uh, you get 
you stop breathing. Your body is told to stop breathing and then you are dead. And because of the deployment of the CBD or the CB receptors in the endocannabinoid system, they're just very spare in that um, cardiorespiratory center. Just luck of the draw. And that's why no one ever dies from being too high. You might already think, you know, Maureen Dowd thought she was dead, but she's fine. She still has a column. Everything's great. There was also an amazing quote. I don't know. I don't know if you have it there in front of you. An amazing quote. Yes, yes. Read that quote. Yes, Sir John Reynolds, physician to Queen Victoria. The bane of many opiates is that the relief of the moment is purchased at the expense of tomorrow's misery. Yeah, Sir John Reynolds, the, the famed. <laughs> I know it. A beautiful writer for a physician. Right. Maybe, exactly. Maybe exactly. Had to be a beautiful writer to be a physician to Queen Victoria. Commander Data. Data. Mr. Data. 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 Commander Data. Data. Time for a little data with Gage Peak, Leafly's data maven. Uh, Gage, had, you had two really interesting stories this week. One about cancer patients looking for information. Yes. Uh, the other about property, property values. values. Your choice. Which one you want to start with? Um, um, let's start with property values. Yeah, let's start with that. property values. So one of the big assumptions that we've seen over the years is that um, cannabis, legal cannabis, can will lead to diminished property values. People are uh, upset when they hear that some sort of cannabis business is moving in next to them or in their neighborhood. But you found a study that came up with some surprising results. Right. Yeah, actually, the uh, the study comes from the University of Wisconsin uh, Business School in Madison uh, from the assistant professor of real estate and urban economics. His name is Dr. Musa Diop, and he found, him and his team found, that uh, property values in Denver actually increased when they were closer to uh, cannabis retail dispensaries. So uh, him and his team in Madison found out that... Uh, for single-family residences within uh, 0.1 miles of retail cannabis establishments, they've actually saw an 8.4 increase of... 8.4% uh, increase in value, right? In value in, in of their the property, correct. Since uh, then, that's since uh, 2014. So It would increase 8.4% more than uh, comparable homes. I wonder what that is. I mean, are these businesses maybe going into commercial areas that are a bit on the rise or those those cannabis businesses help that commercial strip or that neighborhood um, gain more solid ground in terms of retail and, and that sort of thing? Well, as we reported, uh, there are 20, over 26,000 jobs uh, in the cannabis industry in the state of Colorado and Realtor.com actually, they do a lot of real estate stories. They have actually done a couple um, similar stories in Colorado relating it to cannabis and they believe that it's ultimately down to it's the population surge that the state has seen over in the last few years um more i don't know if that's related totally to cannabis right, right. but there are more people moving to right colorado. there are all, there are more people moving to colorado there are more jobs there um and that's helping the economy rise um the other study that you turned up this week was about cancer patients and information about medical marijuana what happened there yeah the study was actually on um in states that have legalized medical and recreational marijuana how are the medical patients that say are having cancer how are they responding to medical marijuana are they are they interested in it do they want medical marijuana. And actually, the study that was done here in Seattle at a uh, National Cancer Institute um, found that of the, it's 
around 1,000 patients that they had in the study, 74% of those participants wanted information, more information on uh, medical marijuana from their caregivers. Yes, Dave? I was waving at someone behind you. <laughs> I know more people than just you, Gage oh, Peak. Darn it. And then anyways, back to the, <laughs> the study. Um, from that 74% of the, the people that want more ma- medical marijuana information from their uh, caregivers and their, their cancer physicians, only 15% of those patients um, got that information from their cancer provider. Which was shocking. Right. Frankly, this made me kind of mad. Uh, well, it's like- good for us, though, and Leafly, because it says the studies, well, it's I should say it's bad because cancer physicians right, should right. be giving we're, the information. We here at Leafly are there but, for you with but that information. The, uh, but the most of the information that they would get would ultimately come from uh, the, the patient's family, friends, uh, fellow cancer survivors that they may or may not know, and then obviously news websites like like the one here. You know, if, if three out of four patients who are battling cancer want information about medical marijuana, and only 15% of physicians and nurses are able or willing to get it to them, that seems just crazy and maddening, frankly. I went in for my annual I say annual physical this week and uh, talked to my doctor, who's great. And we had a conversation. And, and when I first spoke to folks in that office a few years ago about marijuana and medical marijuana, um, it was sort of an early conversation for them. And now they told me that, that you know, medical marijuana is kind of really all the, the hot topic at their CMEs, their continuing medical education seminars. Um, which is good, which is great, you know, more power to to the people who are putting those things on. But I think this goes back to the need for that education in medical school, right? Yeah, that I just had that that pitch from a Toronto writer who was speaking to um, a licensed producer and a physicians up in, in Canada, and just said that there's a real old school mentality against just a blockade of generational against even the the great promise, uh, the best the best effects of medical marijuana, right, with, right, that it's it's a true kind of cultural block that people resent it. They don't want to have to. They don't want to have to deal with it. Right. There's right. a sense of like I don't want to have to learn the new game. I'm established, and also there, there's there's great uh, intimacy between uh, a certain level of medical establishment and pharmaceutical company. So just kind of habitually, there's this like leave us out of it. And I love that the it's cracking and it's soon it'll be a race to be like, who's going to be the last. But it's, but it sort of goes along with a, a theme that we're hearing more and more of um, in both in politics and other areas now, like in, in medical, uh, in the medical area with med school. And there are these sort of gatekeepers who tend to be the elders, people of an older generation in Congress, the gatekeepers are the committee chair people. Um, they are the people setting the agenda for what bills get heard, what get a hearing, what go through and what don't, what don't even receive a vote. Um, in medical school, they're the medical school deans. They're the, the, the professors who are choosing to or not to teach this stuff or even to look into this stuff or, or give it their stamp of approval, right? I mean, you know how a senior person can shut off discussion of a topic like this in, in a room or in a meeting. Um, and it takes a lot of courage to, uh, to try to break through that. So yeah, it's, it's, um, this goes back to a, another article we had this week. Um, Peter Hecht wrote a great feature on uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, who's the, the state's senior senator, has been there for a quarter of a century or so, very revered in the state. And she is 
also of that older generation where her mind was set early on regarding cannabis. Um, she was actually a member of a uh, parole board in the 60s. That was one of the, her first um, roles in public service. And she really, at that point, bought into the gateway theory. She believed that she saw too many people coming through um, on drugs or using drugs and getting into trouble that way. Uh, and even as her state of California turned and evolved and changed its mind on both medical and now adult use cannabis, she has continued to be a staunch prohibitionist, votes for almost nothing in the way of legal reform, and uh, is, is uh, it's one of these weird issues with her where so many people who are with her on, on every other issue sort of look at her on cannabis and it's like, uh, I know, you, you ought to you know, open your mind, open a door just a little bit to this one, Senator. Yeah, she, they're, they're, there's Chris Christie, there's Jeff Sessions, there's these holdouts who kind of talk about cannabis like it was 1982 dare times. They're just, and but she is by far the leftiest example of this type of people who are tenaciously holding on to this story of cannabis as a gateway drug. And yeah, the, I, I don't have enough time. For, that's yes. like breakfast is a great way of drug. I bet everyone who did heroin had breakfast right. once. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had uh, one of the things that. Um, I, I sort of dove into this week with uh, with that haymaker column on uh, the popularity of medical cannabis was this idea that there's a really interesting generational break. Um, basically, anybody 18 to 64 right now um, is in favor of legalization of cannabis, and the the minimum the minimum is 60 percent support. Um, and that's in, in the higher age bracket. But then you go 65 plus and support plummets down to about like 37%. I mean, it just falls off a cliff. And so I went back and did some some uh, some research and found that there was an, a really interesting break between essentially 1967 and 1971. Um, Gallup just started doing polling back then. Uh, in 1967, uh, only 5% of college freshmen had ever taken a toke on a joint. 5% of college freshmen had any sort of experience with cannabis whatsoever. Um, not by 1969, that was up to 22%. And by 1971, it was 55%. So in those four years, this massive sea change happened in terms of cannabis, uh, both on college campuses and among young people in general. So if you were, you know, if, if you're now 64, uh, the chances, basically one in, a one in two chance that you tried cannabis while in college or of that age. Um, whereas if you were, if you're now 68, you know, there was a one in 20 chance that you tried cannabis as a young person. So there's a really interesting break there. Um, yeah, that divide, I mean, that you got it nailed down to like a four year span was really interesting. And it makes cannabis sound like a new product where I bet there was a time where at this point, only 5% of college students had ever drank an energy drink. And one year later, 98% had drank an energy drink. Um, but or the, or, the, or, the, or the change from vinyl to CDs or from CDs to MP3s, you know, this yeah. sort of thing. One of the things I would point out too is uh, how many of those people actually use the internet. The older generation, I don't think, is actually getting on the computer, but the 18 to 64... I know. I know. I have a. I have a. I still have young grandparents. I have one of my grandmas is. Uh, she's 65, and she's fully immersed in the world of 
Facebook and news and all of those things online. So maybe, and she's open to marijuana, but the ones, the older ones that haven't actually delved deep into the internet, interwebs have maybe not learned or found out that the past studies they were told when they were children. Yeah, if you're still watching the CBS Evening News as your main source of information, personal experience is going to clear this up with with older people who learn medical benefits of cannabis. Florida's coming, Dave. Yeah, no, there there was no arguing with the easy residue-free pain relief of topicals for aching joints. Like it, it can, it will improve the lives of older people. Absolutely, I, I firmly believe once once topicals hit those senior communities in Florida, it's going to go like wildfire. I've already seen is, it in Arizona too a little bit. They they have a very strong medical marijuana um, program and industry, and it's has a healthy base of elders. Right, that, right, uh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Come on, baby, come on, baby. Gage, I'm glad we have you here for this because uh, just earlier today we had a story break where Target put a Charlotte's Web-derived hemp oil on their website, was selling CW hemp, and the sort of the the cannabis world kind of went nuts over it for about four hours, and then all of a sudden, poof, the product was gone. It disappeared from Target's website. And around the office, we know this as the peak effect because uh, Gage Peak had something similar happen. Uh, months ago when the uh, TSA put up a little notice on its website that said essentially medical marijuana is okay to bring through our checkpoints, right? Correct. And yes. then you you called them. We did that. We did, I think we put the story up and right around the time we put the story up, they maybe an hour or two later, they pulled it, it off. It disappeared, <laughs> right? So you can only imagine these re- reporters are calling the media office of whatever agency this is, whether it's TSA or Target and saying, hey, you know, good for you. Interesting you put that up there. And the media people go back to their higher-ups. It's like, who the hell authorized this? Gage, you're supposed to report the news, not be the news. I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> anyway, we're keeping an eye on that to see if Target uh, puts that back up. I actually exchanged a couple of emails with uh, an official with CW Hemp this morning. And uh, at a certain point, uh, things just went dark with that <laughs> form of communication. I'm assuming they have uh, some other dealing things. with some issues back yes. there uh, at their office. We wish them well. I like I like the folks at CW Hemp, and I hope their product goes nationwide. Uh, if not at Target, then somewhere else um, because it's good stuff. Uh, lastly, we have to mention uh, the passing of Hugh Hefner. Uh, news came down last night. Uh, the founder of Playboy magazine. Passed away at age, was it 91? 91, which is pretty much, you know, at that point you're celebrating. It's like, man, you made it 91. Good on you. Um, and we had a couple conversations around the office this morning about Hefner's connection to cannabis. He most famously gave $5,000 to Keith Stroop uh, to start normal back in the early 70s. Um, but he also, it's interesting, like, you know, he did that, and I think he's always been a lifelong he's, supporter uh, of... I was actually, today, you want to know this, I haven't talked to you about this, but um, before I came in here, I was listening to the uh, Joe Rogan podcast, and uh, he, on his show today, I can't remember... Can't remember the guest he has on, but on the show today he was talking about Hugh Hefner and how he went to multiple marijuana policy project parties at the 
Playboy Mansion. Oh, really? He went to two of them, and they would just smoke a lot of cannabis and listen to music. So uh, it sounded like a great deal at the uh, the Playboy Mansion. But so thank funny. you, Joe Rogan, for that yeah, story. Yeah, that's so funny because Hefner, like, I don't, I associate him again with the Mad Men generation, right? I like to relax with a cocktail, uh, some smooth jazz on my wife, on my on my Wi-Fi, on my hi-fi <laughs> system, you know, and a woman half my age. It, uh, uh, it's actually a third of his age. Right, yeah, well, at this point, a quarter of his age, really. Yeah, no, he kept, he, the math kept changing with that dude. He didn't die till yesterday. <laughs> so, um, the, no, we, could, we, we all owe him a, a debt for the normal thing, and then we all have a million other reasons to feel squirrely about him, you know, warping expectations of what women. <laughs> of, of, and, and, and men, and, men's be, and the, the behavior of men and the expectations, right? So, and the power yeah. of chlorine in a jacuzzi. There's only so much it can do. Good Lord. Good Lord. I saw him, I saw him at a, uh, it was actually at a literary event in L.A. a few years ago. And uh, he looked okay for his age, you know. But I've got to say, when it comes to old guys aging well, I still, and I still, was, I still am surprised when I see him, Tommy Chong has aged just better than just about any older man I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I, I got to say, the guy looks great. Better okay. My my hallmark for this is Al Franken. Ah, okay. So, so in a beauty pageant, who wins, Al Franken or Chong? Oh man, see, Tommy's got that deep, <laughs> deep, that deep, rich tan, right? Right. Okay. And Al Al has the the, uh, the the personality. I mean, Al can can wow you with his speech, with his jokes, with everything. Tommy's just hanging out, man. Oh, good for him. Yeah. He yeah. should like he should get some cannabis statesman modeling gigs. <laughs> He's he's got pl- he's got plenty of product going on I, there. Yeah, I, yeah. I shouldn't worry about Tommy Chong's yeah. cannabis prospects. I know. I once we once uh, uh, walked down the street with Tommy Chong, and uh, it's 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 like walking with some sort of um, movie star or supermodel, except in a cannabis way, because people just never stop offering him weed. Like <laughs> oh. seriously, like every day. Four times an hour. Yeah. Just for the story of like, I got high with Chong. Exactly. Yeah. Well, oh. it's amazing. Also, it's amazing how many people have weed on them as you walk down the street. Right? <laughs> he, should go, he should go undercover with the cops and just bust everyone who offers him um, since he's a magnet for it. <laughs> That's clearly. horrible. That's a horrible <laughs> thought. Thank you for leaving us with that thought, Dave Schmader. Uh, with that, we'll leave you until next week. Uh, I don't know if Ben Adam will be back next week. He may just stay He will in, not be back oh next God, week. He's going to stay in Paris the whole month. Vraiment? Yeah, All he'll right. be in Paris. All right. Until then, I am Bruce. I'm Gage. I'm Dave. And we'll see you next week. The Roll-Up is a production of Leafly, the world's cannabis information resource. Production assistance from Katie Sewell and Charlize Metcalf. Our theme song is Turn Me On by the Shivas. Be sure and check out their work on iTunes. We survive and thrive on word of mouth. If you enjoy what you hear, subscribe, tell your friends, and tweet a link to the world. The math kept changing with that dude.